As far back as the early 1950s, local, quote, urban developers and politicians were making plans and scheming to, quote, renew the urban landscape of the east side of Wilmington. Eventually, the plan was to demolish 22 blocks, pointing out that some structures were in decay without plumbing and still had outhouses. However, many houses had been up to code and contained families, and the many businesses that there, the many businesses there supported the local economy. But the die had been cast, so before the year was over, the bulldozers and the wrecking ball moved in and began to seal the fate of the east side. Among the sites to be demolished was the historic AUMP Church at 8th and French Street, founded by Peter Spencer in 1813, and the source of the oldest African-American celebration in the United States, the August Quarterly. Another site set for demolition was the National Theater, later the Hopkins, and many of those jazz clubs, like the Spot Grill. Some of those streets where Lem used to uh, walk his beat would soon disappear. Despite the encroaching mall of, quote, Negro removal, as many residents would call urban renewal, the beat went on. Comrades and friends, hello. Uh, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. And I'm very happy to bring you tonight another wonderful episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, with me, as always, in the studio is super producer Carl. And also joining me is author and local historian Stephen Leach. Uh, Stephen has written many books, many essays. Uh, but the book we're going to be talking about most tonight is Boise's Horn. Stephen, thank you for coming. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, before we get into the book, um, we talked a little bit before we turned the microphones on about like your background and uh, where you're from, and you, you have uh, very deep roots, so why don't you let everybody know sort of where you grew up, what it was like, um, and where it was. Well, I often tell people I've been here for 300 years. And that's because um, both sides of my family go back uh, hundreds of years in Delaware. Uh, my father's side goes back to the colonial period in uh, Newcastle, and uh, my mother's side goes back to the mid-19th century. Uh, and uh, all of my relatives have been born in Wilmington, uh, in the city, in buildings that aren't there, and a couple of buildings that still are. Uh, I uh, grew up in uh, Richardson Park uh, and uh, also uh, kicked around Wilmington uh, where my mother's family lived uh, in the Ninth Ward. Uh, so uh, I've been around, yes, uh, for a long time. I'm uh, almost 80 years old and uh, uh, have known people uh, all during that time. So I don't know if that helps. It does help. <laughs> um, I think the big the, the, the big part of this book for me uh, was just what the East Side looked like, what Wilmington looked like in the times that we're looking at here. So your book covers the jazz history from maybe about the end of World War I uh, through the mid-60s, say. Um, but at the end of World War I, in the 20s and the 30s, and, and even post-World War II, can you just talk a little bit about what Wilmington looked like, what the east side looked like, um, what, um, what the community really was? Um, you, you catalog so many you know, small clubs and restaurants and, and cafes, and I don't think uh, people now know what a vibrant um, neighborhood there was on the east side of Wilmington. Well, Wilmington, um, the east side of Wilmington is actually the oldest part of Wilmington. Wilmington was built from the Christina River uh, westward, and uh, its orientation was from uh, east to west, kind of like Philadelphia now. Um, some of the oldest streets are in that neighborhood. Uh, the last purely cobblestone street was in the southeast corner of the east side. Uh, originally, uh, my family uh, came from that particular neighborhood. Uh, my uh, great-grandfather uh, had a, a building, a store that's still there at 7th and Church Street. And uh, uh, 
it was largely a, a German neighborhood back then. Uh, but as time went on, uh, the um, I guess partially due to the, uh, the the great migration from the south, it, it became a, a black neighborhood. Uh, and uh, there were some Russians also over in Southbridge. That was, and there was a Jewish neighborhood uh, down in that area. It was a pretty mixed neighborhood and changing too. But as the uh, 20s wore on, um, it really kind of became a, a black neighborhood uh, thanks to some institutions like uh, the uh, Howard High School, uh, which was founded there. Uh, and also the later on the Walnut Street YMCA were cultural hubs in that area. Um, a, a lot of music sprang up there. I don't know exactly the the uh, genesis of the that. I do know that one of my grandfather's neighbors uh, back in uh, the early part of the century was a fellow by the name of Uriah Burton whose uh, daughter married my friend Ralph Mars, whose oldest brother, Peck Mars, had one of the uh, very first jazz bands in uh, Wilmington. It uh, was founded almost uh, when radio began because his band originally was called the Radio Boys. And uh, a number of mus musicians came out of that band as well as uh, a band uh, led by Claude and Artie Wells and a number of musicians came out of that. Very much like, you know, on the national scene, musicians coming out of, uh, out of the Count Basie band or the Billy Eckstein band, and who played during, you know, the bebop era. Uh, the city, that part of the city looked like just about any other part of the city, like on the west side, row homes that uh, were, you know, connected to one another. And, uh, uh, it was very typical in a lot of ways. Uh, and there were uh, a couple of institutions that sprang up there, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, uh, Walnut Street YMCA and, and the Howard High School. Uh, also, uh, it, it was a very historical place among the early African-American religions. Uh, Peter Spencer built his church there. Uh, and uh, that's the basis for uh, a celebration that's uh, actually going to be presented uh, next week. I don't know when this is actually going to be aired, but next week uh, from this particular date. Uh, and uh, that uh, uh, is a, a longstanding uh, celebration in, in Wilmington. It's part of the history. Uh, and uh, uh, as far as the musicians are concerned, uh, you know, we go way back on the east side with a lot of musicians who um, who were, you know, those who, how can I say, um, uh, influenced people like Clifford Brown and Lem Winchester and those who uh, um, uh, took advantage of, you know, the recording industry in uh, the city. Uh, there were a few other earlier ones, uh, like uh, Betty Roche, who grew up on East 12th Street, um, in the early part of the century and uh, in uh, the early 40s uh, joined Duke Ellington for a while um, and um, others like Daisy Winchester who had a uh, uh, an establishment down on Clun Street one of those cobblestone streets on the in the southeast corner of the the east side uh, during uh, prohibition times it was a place that was uh, uh, a speakeasy and a jazz club and most likely a brothel as well. Uh, Daisy Winchester uh, was on radio. Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, programs, well, I won't say a lot, but a sizable amount of programs that were recorded uh, at local radio stations for later broadcast, and Daisy Winchester had one of those. She also sang with uh, a number of artists uh, in the late 30s in uh, Wilmington in, in the early 40s, like the, 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 the Lowry brothers, uh, Bud and, and Boise Lowry, uh, and uh, made one record <laughs> uh, with an upcoming band uh, led by Louis Jordan, who is considered by many as the godfather of rhythm and blues. Uh, and uh, 
she came from uh, Wilmington uh, and uh, worked, I, I, as I understand, as a domestic. Uh, who knows? You know, she might have been at my grandmother's house, you know, doing the laundry. But <laughs> she was, um, she was a, uh, one of the early ones. And luckily, we have, you know, one recording by her. It was done commercially. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the th one of the themes throughout the book, whether it's the period we're talking about now, <clears throat> uh, before World War II, or after sort of that pause, and after when you know we see Clifford Brown and, and, and some of the people, some of the musicians that people are more familiar with, we don't have a lot of recordings at all, um, which is interesting. So the ones we do have, um, you you talk about a little bit because they're sort of uh, they're special. That must have been one of the earlier ones because that's pre, you know, pre World War II, I guess. Oh, uh, 1940. A, 40. Okay, yeah. so right at the sort of right at the beginning of World right, War II. Right. And Betty Roche, her first recording was in 1941 with a group in New York called the Savoy Sultans, who were part of the kind of the house band of the the uh, uh, the Savoy Club in Harlem. Uh, and uh, those are the earliest ones. Yes. Yeah, I think um, people, uh, and I, I re don't recall where I saw this statistic. I think the historian Dale Norwood from the University of Delaware might have like sent it out on social media in some fashion, but that, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th to the 20th century, Newcastle County in Wilmington, Delaware had maybe the third or fourth highest population of black people in, in, in the north um, just because of the Great Migration, and it was very affected by the Harlem Renaissance, um, so, you know, even even before World War Two, there's a very vibrant art scene with now I, I'd like to get into some of the venues because if you could, because I'm I don't know, because I guess because I'm from here and I and I, I feel like I know the city in, in some fashion. I'm always just fascinated by some of these places. Um, I know the, the the big one was the Club Baby Grand. Um, this, is it San Susi? Is that how you, you would say? San Susi. Yeah. San Susi. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Cafe Continental. There was a Club Harlem. I think it, it's one. Well, point. Club Harlem. Uh, uh, before the uh, Second World War, uh, was at Ninth and Poplar, and then after the war, it became the Club Baby Grand. I see. So it was the same club essentially. Uh, the San Susi uh, was a very forward club. A progressive club. I often uh, characterize the San Susi as the Cafe Society of Wilmington because, uh, you know, up until the early 60s, uh, there were still the Jim Crow policies regarding uh, uh, public uh, places, you know, restaurants and, and bars and stuff like that. And uh, on the West Side, uh, black folk uh, were not welcome. Uh, there's that famous case in, in uh, I think it actually began in the late 50s or early 60s, uh, where uh, Dutch Burton, who was a city councilman at large, uh, but he represented the black community, uh, was refused service in a place called the Eagle Restaurant, which used to be in the old parking building at 9th and Orange. And uh, Dutch, uh, who was really combative, I mean, I knew Dutch, uh, and uh, he... Uh, filed suit, and uh, to make a long story short, that suit that he filed led to the first civil rights uh, legislation on accommodations. Uh, but on the east side, anybody was welcome in any of those clubs. I mean, mostly black folk went there, but uh, I know uh, that in the uh, uh, Club Baby Grand, I know people who were white and who went there, musicians, of course, um, but the San Susi was a little bit different. It was actually operated by a, a white woman by the name of um, Marion Matthews. Uh, she changed Marion Allen. And uh, she uh, uh, had all sorts of people come into that club. It was an integrated club. As a matter of fact, uh, Lem Winchester, uh, who was a, a policeman and black, uh, and, and later had a career as a famous vibraphonist, one of the best, actually. We're going to talk about him, a very interesting figure. Very interesting figure. Uh, kept his vibes in there. I mean, if anyone knows a, a vibraphone or vibraharp, 
is a pretty heavy piece of instrument. You know, it's a heavy metal instrument. And so it's something you can't carry around like a guitar or a saxophone or anything like that. So he kept it there at uh, in the San Susi, and he would duck in there, uh, you know, taking a break from walking the beat to, you know, work out something in his mind um, on, the, on the instrument. So... Um, uh, so it was a very welcoming club, and all sorts of folks visited there and played there, and it was uh, successful for many, many years. It it survived. Yeah, it uh, was so, and that was that was Fourteenth and King. Is that yeah. where that was? Because I know, and, and again, I just try to place it because I'm just fascinated that there was this very famous sort of progressive jazz club at a very sort of famous time for jazz, where I think. There's a soul food place there called Evelyn's now. It's probably not the same building, uh, but there, there's a there's a church there, and on the back of that church, across from the park that's there, there's a soul food restaurant. Oh, I know where you mean, where the split is between King Street and Market Street. Correct. No, that was uh, 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 the San Susi was up from that. Okay. Okay. The building's still there. Okay. Um, and the uh, uh, 14th Street is the cross street that was nearest to it. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the only one that survives as far as buildings are concerned. The spot it went long ago with, with uh, the Poplar Street A project or the uh, urban renewal or the Negro removal, right. um, that went uh, with that uh, with a lot of uh, the buildings like the Hopkins Theater and the, and the, uh, uh, the Mother AUMP Church. All that went. Yeah. I think it's pretty telling that um, that site that you mentioned at Ninth and Orange, uh, where Burton was turned away at the lunch counter, I think it was 58, I'm not positive, um, but there is a historical marker there. But of course, that whole block is filled by a BPG high-rise. Right. So I think, I think that's actually pretty telling of like our, our current sort of political system, is we, we do mark the spot that it happened with the beautiful, you know, beautiful historical marker, and we also let the biggest corporate developer just put up... Uh, you know, a high rise there, right? And yes, and they, yeah, they did name a small street in that complex, the William um, Burton, Burton Way or Way something, or something. Plaza, yeah. You know? yeah. So I think that that's, uh, you know, what can you say? Yeah. That's Wilmington. Well, at least his name is kept alive, and uh, anybody who doesn't uh, know who William Dutch Burton is, they can come and talk to me because I knew the guy, I drank with him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think, I will say, you know, joking aside or, or sort of uh, tongue in cheek sort of reference aside, I obviously, I knew that story uh, even before they tore down the, uh, you know, the, the structure that was there. That's also the same structure that the Ninth Street Bookshop was in before they moved to yes. the, yeah. the, the Jack and Gemma, you mm -hmm. know, solidarity. Right. Um, yeah, so I am glad, you know, that, that that's there and they named that plaza there, you know, because I think that that, Especially for people like me, who I knew my I knew my father and mother were born in 1950 and 1951, so I knew they were walking around when you know this elected official couldn't get a cup of coffee and a hamburger at this lunch counter. So it really puts in uh, a, a very clear relief what's what what kind of uh, what kind of situation there was uh, Jim Crow situation even as late as you know 1960 61 62. So let's talk about Lem Winchester because oh, right. this guy is a character. Um, yeah. So uh, is he a content? Well, I, I do obviously want to touch on Clifford Brown, maybe the greatest trumpet player. We don't know, but I always say that just because I'm from Wilmington. So. No, he is one of the greatest. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but but uh, now was Lem Winchester? A, he was a contemporary of uh, of Brown. Yes, uh, at one time, and then obviously Brown they passed were, away early. They were classmates at Howard High School. Um, uh, they were within a few years uh, in age of one another. And um, uh, I think Lem was a bit younger than, 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 than Brownie. Uh, but they all went to Howard High School. Uh, they were all in the same band at the time. Uh, Lem uh, began uh, musically playing the piccolo, then he went to the flute, and then he went to the uh, I believe the saxophone. Uh, Lem could play just about anything. Um, a friend of mine who uh, is 96 years old now, uh, still with us, was Lem's best friend. 
they grew up together. And uh, my friend, his name's Maurice Sims, uh, says that uh, Lem Winchester was the smartest man he ever knew. He could pick up any instrument very quickly, uh, and he has stories to support that. Uh, but uh, he uh, settled on the uh, vibraphone, uh, mainly uh, inspired by uh, the way uh, Lionel Hampton played the piano, using you know one finger at a time on on the keys. And uh, uh, another musician in town by the name of Preston Johnson happened to have a a set of vibes in his home, and uh, Maurice says that he and Lem would climb in to, you know, Preston Johnson's window to play, you know, his vibes, you know. So he learned uh, how to play the vibes. He had a set of vibes, I understand, uh, on one of the upper floors of the spot there on French Street. But he kind of really liked the instrument, and he stuck with it and became very good at playing it. Um, he was one of the best uh, on the vibraphone, uh, but I'll let his music attest to, you know, his prowess on that. Uh, but all during this time, he uh, uh, was employed by the city police department. Uh, he was a, a cop on the beat, and I think he, he uh, was helped along by his foster father, who was William J. Winchester, who was Delaware's first black legislator. And he uh, was also a judge. Was he also a judge? Uh, I know. I know he was a big. He was. Yeah, I, I mean, I know he was elected official, and I wasn't even sure. I, I, I made the connection, and maybe I'm mistaking it because of Winchester being a cop later on. But, yeah, I knew he was, his adopted father was a Was, was a, a big state legislature, yeah. yeah. And, but his, his, his job in the city of Wilmington was the, he was the superintendent of the sanitation department. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't know what it was called back then. Uh, and that was his regular job. Uh, but uh, Lem, you know, he uh, played around town. He played uh, at the uh, Club Baby Grand. He, he gigged with uh, Clifford Brown. Uh, they played a lot together. Um, he uh, was a kind of a regular at the San Susi Club. Uh, he actually was able to play in other locations uh, in the tri-state area. Uh, and he also recorded uh, a lot of his I will, I will say just, yeah, just about every recording that he made was officially as an amateur because he had another job, but he did uh, play a, a, on a number of albums, uh, uh, a number of which were um, uh, titled after him, basically, but he also was a sideman for others. I mean, he played with the cream of the crop, you know, he played with Roy Haynes and... and uh, um, God, don't get old. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we, we're all we're all on the same yeah, uh, right. same trajectory. Uh, on that one. Roy Haynes uh, and uh, uh, Shirley Scott, uh, Etta Jones. Uh, he, one of his first albums was with the uh, Ramsey Lewis Trio. Uh, he uh, actually, uh, when he was a policeman in 1957, he played at a club that. Uh, is or was in the old merchandise mart, that big empty shopping center there called Marshall's. He played with some college kids um, led by a, a young fellow by the name of John Chowning. And they played there during uh, the summer. And sometimes uh, Lem's uh, band members, called the Modernists, would sit in. Um, and some of his band members went on to uh, become uh, fairly well known. He had a percussionist by the name of Papa D. Allen who later uh, played with a band called War, which backed uh, Eric Burton, you know, back in the early 70s. Uh, and uh, Gerald Price, who uh, was on some albums by Richie Cole and Sonny Stitt and uh, Milt Jackson actually. Uh, so the band that he had was you know, a top shelf Wilmington musicians, but they would sit in with Lem and and uh, the and John Chowning and his college buddies, and John Chowning had a connection with RCA somehow, and they uh, uh, before the kids had to go back to college, uh, they went up to RCA in in, in New York and actually recorded some uh, 
uh, tunes, um, an album's worth of, of music. Uh, RCA didn't think it was quite up to snuff and, and never got produced by them. But the tape recording of, of that session landed in the hands of uh, Leonard Feather, who was a musician and a composer and an impresario, and a bigwig in the uh, Newport Jazz Festival. And he heard this tape and he uh, invited Lem Winchester to the Newport Jazz Festival in 1958. And that kind of broke it open, you know, for, for Lem Winchester. He, he began to see how good he was and his first full album after that was with the Lem, was with the uh, Ramsey Lewis Trio. And then that got him some uh, recording dates with a number of musicians on the Prestige label. Uh, and he did uh, three or four albums under his own name. And he also was the side man for, you know, people like Jack McDuff and Shirley Scott and, and uh, Etta Jones. As a matter of fact, there is one uh, tune recording on a 45 by Etta Jones that actually hit the hit list with Lem Winchester backing her up. But anyway, um, push came to shove. You know, he had to make a decision whether he was going to continue as a Wilmington police officer or go professional. Uh, and uh, the pressure built, uh, and he finally made the decision to uh, retire from the Wilmington Police Department and with his own band, which uh, he had formed at that time, The Modernist, and I might say there are no recordings of, of The Modernist that I know of right now, but um, he uh, had his last uh, uh, gig as an amateur with The Modernist at the Club Baby Grand in December of 1960. And he was ready to go on to his first professional assignment in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And Lem Winchester had uh, this hearse, you know, so, so he could carry all of his instruments and everything. And so they all piled into the hearse, and I guess there was a, a car to follow him because, you know, he, 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 his younger brother, uh, George Wilkerson, was a, a kind of a roadie with him. And uh, that's important. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, all headed out to Indianapolis to this club to... Uh, play their first professional gig. Well, Lem Winchester had this little trick that he played, and I have to regress a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, you, you you deploy the famous uh, Chekhov's gun uh, uh, gambit in, in this because there's a story that goes to that. You can tell it or we can tease it and have people buy the book because I thought it was interesting. You know what? Tell it. Okay, well, Lem had a, a trick uh, that he would um, play to scare people, basically. And uh, he used to his uh, regular police 38 Colt. And what he would do is he would take all the bullets out of the chambers except for one. And he knew, he knew where that bullet was. And he'd spin the cylinder and count the clicks in the ratchet. As I said, he was really smart, right? So he was able to do this, right? And with confidence. So he would spin the cylinder, put the gun to his head, and it would go click. Uh, and it scared people. I, I, Yeah, Russian roulette's not like, I mean, it's not really funny no. necessarily. <laughs> it's scary. As a matter of fact, uh, a friend of mine who was a, actually Wilmington's first black DJ in the city, Mitch Thomas, said he saw him do it down at WILM where, where Mitch was doing radio. But can uh, I interrupt one second? I have to ask you. Is the, the WILM building that I remember right downtown on, like, I want to say, like, maybe 11th and French, was that the original uh, radio station? Obviously, it's not there anymore, but there was a small, almost looked like a little yeah, farm I, building. I know that building because uh, a newspaper that I worked on, a black newspaper, was on the other side of that. So okay. I know exactly so where that is. Is that, that's, that's where you're talking about. That was No, the... I think that was uh, at another location. Okay. I want to okay. say, uh, you know... Um, in, in an old uh, building uh, just off of Rodney Square. I can't recall the name gotcha. of it. Gotcha. But anyway, Mitch saw him do it, and Mitch said it scared the, we can say. You can say shit, yeah. It scared the shit out of him, you know. Um, and um, so he would do this just to get a charge out of people, you know. <laughs> um, so when he was at this um, first gig in Indianapolis, Indiana, um his 
piano player, from the story I've heard, um, had a toothache. <laughs> and so, you know, between sets, uh, Mitch went to the bartender to see if he had any aspirin or something like that. But when he saw that the bartender uh, had a pistol under the, the bar, he said, well, let me show you a little trick. So he did this whole routine with uh, the, the pistol that the uh, bartender had. Uh, the problem was that the pistol wasn't a Colt 38. It was a Smith & Wesson snub nose 38. And the difference between the two is that in the, in the Colt 38, the cylinder went in one direction, but in the Smith & Wesson, the cylinder went in the other direction. So he basically miscalculated when he spun it and counted the, 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 the clicks in the ratchet where that round was. He put the gun under his chin, and I know this because his brother, younger brother, George Wilkerson, witnessed it. And the bullet went through the top of his head, and he died on his first professional gig, which was a, a real shame, and we, we really lost something. Because both uh, Wilmington's greatest musicians only had a career of three years or thereabouts. And uh, uh, it was a real tragedy, as was the tragedy with Clifford Brown. And that's, I guess, a great segue to that because we still uh, celebrate his work today. Um, uh, we met in person for the first time at the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival uh, this summer. Um, I contend, and a lot of my friends agree, uh, you know, there is a, there is a pretty vibrant you know, music and arts um, community here. Um, you know, Bob Marley famously lived here for a little while, so we celebrate that work every year. I think it's very important. Um, I, I think uh, David Bromberg put on some big shows. Um, I really enjoyed those. But the real, the best festival, the best music festival or festival at all in the city is the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival to me. It's in the middle. It's in Rodney Square. It has that tradition going all the way back <laughs> um, to Clifford Brown. And, um, yeah, why don't you tell people uh, who Clifford Brown was? Um, and maybe also this is a good time to introduce the eponymous uh, Boise uh, and, and the, the, the teacher. I guess he was also uh, a private teacher and uh, a Howard uh, band director or, or, or no, he taught was, at Howard as well. Uh, he was, yeah, Boise was never a teacher at Howard. Okay. I, I'll, I'll mention uh, who was in a moment. But Boise Lowry was a musician. Uh, he had a, a band in the late 30s, early 40s called the Deuces of Aces, a, uh, the, the Deuces of Rhythm. Uh, it was like the prime band at the time. It played uh, all the time at the Club Harlem, which later became the Club Baby Grand. Uh, he and his brother Bud uh, Lowry uh, were the head of the band, uh, led the band. But Boise was also a teacher and a humanitarian. Uh, and he was a mentor to many of the up-and-coming musicians in town. Uh, he gave lessons uh, uh, in his unique uh, kind of um, guru way uh, to uh, a host of musicians. Just about every musician in, in town had taken lessons or was mentored by Boise Lowry at one time or another. And many of those uh, we know, um, you know, people like Des Khan, for example, uh, in the who, 90s. In the 90s. Um, people like Larry Williams and Han Henry, Harry Spencer and Matthew Shipp, who, you know, is also part of uh, the big jazz uh, world now. Um, even uh, Ernie Watts uh, was mentored by uh, Boise Lowry. His influence was, was really great. And because he did this, I think he kept the, the whole jazz... Uh, presence in, in, in Wilmington alive, almost single-handedly. And in a lot of ways, he was a hero. And, uh, of course, yes, he was a teacher to uh, Clifford Brown. Uh, Clifford Brown had another teacher, actually someone who was on the faculty at Howard High School when he was a, a band member there, uh, a guy by the name of Sam Wooding, uh, who uh, was from Philadelphia, he uh, uh, be, formed a band in New York during the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, you know, he played at uh, some of the uh, uh, venues there. Uh, a contemporary of Duke Ellington, 
But Sam Wooding uh, took uh, his band, which was called the Chocolate Dandies, to Europe. And he was probably one of those who was instrumental in, in uh, introducing jazz to Europeans during the uh, early part of the century, in the 20s, and recorded a lot of music on, on continental labels like Pathé and Odeon and things like that. Uh, one of the songs that he played uh, was uh, uh, adopted by Josephine Baker, uh, a tune called Le, Le, uh, I Have Two Loves in French. Uh, uh, Je deux Je, yeah, that's it. Je, Je, Je deux amours. Yeah, there you go. That's two loves. Yeah. Deux amours. I have two loves. Thank you. And um, uh, so he was very successful uh, in in Europe. He even toured, you know, in places like Spain and Germany and the early Soviet Union uh, back then. Um, but you know, when the the Nazis came to power, he, like a lot of people, had to leave. So he returned to uh, to Philadelphia, and he uh, uh, tried to start a band, but you know it was during the depression, and uh, you know he was unfamiliar in this country because of his years in in Europe. So he went back to to school. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, got a master's degree, which enabled him to uh, teach. And his first teaching I don't know it was his first teaching job, but his earliest teaching job was at Howard High School as the band teacher when Clifford Brown was here. And uh, a friend of mine who is now deceased, uh, Ken Anderson, who was a classmate uh, of Clifford Brown's during that time, um, says that, you know, he thinks that it was um, Sam Wooding who introduced uh, Clifford Brown to the trumpet. Uh, I think before that he was playing the trombone or something. Uh, and uh, so he was an influence on, on, on Clifford Brown. And then he, you know, after the war, uh, Sam Wooding left, uh, and he went on to some other projects. Uh, so um, Clifford Brown had some great teachers, you know, and, and some great musicians in the area. Another influence on him was a fellow by the name of Ralph Morris, who um, uh, was a musician, uh, an accomplished musician who even uh, auditioned for Duke Ellington, though he didn't get the job, uh, and uh, was one of those uh, after the war who had a small combo. And fortunately, we have a recording of, of him with a, a saxophonist by the name of Bob Cordray uh, that was made at a radio station. Uh, and uh, uh, so... Clifford Brown had a lot of support in this town, and when he passed on, when uh, in 1956 in that awful automobile accident, uh, it really traumatized the city. And you know, on top of that came the urban renewal, right, right on the heels of it. So it was it was really devastating to the city of Wilmington. And it's great though that you know Clifford Brown's uh, legacy is is so well celebrated now with this festival. As someone pointed out, the only jazz festival in the country named after a musician. Uh, it's uh, it's an, an amazing story, and it's done wonders for, for our community. You mentioned uh, Harry Spencer. Uh, that's, you know, my connection to all of this, if I only have a small one, is that Nomad opened on Orange Street several years ago, and... Uh, you know, Harry Spencer uh, was a big part of drawing musicians that people wanted to go check out in Wilmington again. Uh, his uh, the, the late Harry Spencer was like a, a, a friend of, of ours. We 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 were we hung out with him numerous times when he played, and uh, his picture is still behind the bar at the Nomad. That's good. Yeah. So I I, I don't know if you get out there at all or if you're able to, but I can tell you that uh, yeah, he is still he's still remembered very very fondly by Linda and all of the regular patrons at the Nomad for sure. Yeah, Harry was a very astute uh, musician. Uh, he actually backed me up when I was reading poetry once, uh, and he was really in tune to the literary community, which is also a, a subject that's near and dear to me. Yeah, we. Um, 
our our mutual friend uh, Bertram Manitz used to put on um, like uh, poetry readings, but they were more they were more like little showcases. You could act out a, a one act play. You could read poetry. You could do whatever. And um, yeah, he played at one of those at Hummingbird to Mars. I'm not surprised. Uh, Harry yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a, a great great fellow. He was. It's uh, too bad that he uh, passed on. I got to add something about Harry Spencer. He was always also a great uh, a peace warrior. He was always coming out to affairs sponsored by Pachman Terrace and performing along, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, along with Kamal, you know, who has right. uh, percussionist uh, gri- yeah. griots uh, while Moja, uh, yeah, uh, plays African music, um, percussion music. But uh, Spencer was just always, always there. Uh, Des Khan tells me he, he would get up at four in the morning to go fishing, and uh, and fish all day, and then make a gig late at night where he'd play it at like two in the morning, like it was nothing. So he was quite a guy too. Yeah, he was a good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Philip Panowski, ladies and gentlemen. I forgot to introduce you. Sorry. That's uh, quite all right. I wanted to sort of sit this out for the most part. No, it's so. good having you here. It's your second your second time in here. Yeah. I know you were, you uh, sort of I guess you uh, edited and, and, and published uh, the book. That's I correct. really this is a good time to plug the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Not only the history, which I I enjoy, and I'm going to save one story for you to tell at the end, but um, but some of the archives you were able to get some of the photographs, some of the playbills. Um, if you're if you're a student of history and especially local history like I am, it's really great and it's and it's indexed. So there's a lot of stuff like today. I wanted to go back and hit some things that I had taken notes on. Went right to the index. Bing bang boom, and there's my there's my stuff. So I I, I really uh, I really enjoyed it. Do you want to? Wh- is it available uh, through your publishing house and elsewhere? Uh, we're definitely going to link to it in the show. I just want to make sure people have the opportunity to easily uh, get it if they want. Well, it's in a couple bookstores. It's uh, down uh, um, a book uh, that place in Dover, Africa. I mean, oh, uh, Rob. Uh, uh, browse about. I browse think. about books. Yeah. It's in uh, uh, Barnes and Noble uh, in uh, the, the uh, Christiana Mall. Uh, it's also, um, it's available. You, you know, I don't like people to go to Amazon, although it's certainly available to Amazon. Yeah. I always but, go. That's why uh, I always sort of open it book, by saying, get it, get it. Uh, yeah. But bookshop.org gives a kickback to, to small bookstores, yes. uh, who participate with them. So that's a great place to get books online. And they also give a, a small discount, but we'll still, we get the full royalty, uh, uh piece of it. And so, uh, you know, it's it's out there. It's available. Um, you know, the index is really amazing because I, one of the things I do when I did when I helped put the index together was to make sure we had a whole section devoted to venues in Wilmington or in Wilmington area where uh, jazz was performed. And it was just performed so many different places. It was just amazing uh, yeah. how much how much people were interested in jazz. there's a mention of it and again as i mentioned to you i grew up or at least my mom and her family grew up and i grew up hanging out in little italy here on the west side and um, there was a i think a benefit show or something at the armory on uh, on 10th and scott or it's between scott and dupont i guess um but i that building's still there yes uh, but that was one of the the big venues back in the 30s and count basie played there any number of times, Lionel Hampton, as well as another place that's not there anymore called the Temple, uh, the Oddfellows Temple around 10th and Orange, uh, which was a, a great venue. As, as a matter of fact, it was in that building that uh, Clifford Brown actually got his career started. Uh, the story is is that Dizzy Gillespie was there, and uh, Dizzy Gillespie had a, 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 another trumpet player uh, who had a bit of a problem with, you know, substances, didn't show up. And so, you know, Dizzy said, well, you know, I need a trumpet player. And Boise said, because Boise and Dizzy, you know, went way back, you know, to their days in, I think, North Carolina, uh, said, well, there's a guy here in town who plays uh, trumpet. So they went down to the pool hall and got Clifford Brown to come up and, uh, uh, Dizzy, uh, who was playing the piano at that time, uh, showed uh, 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 Clifford Brown the charts, and Brownie sort of looked at the charts, put them down, says, yeah, I can do this. 
And so when uh, Clifford Brown began to play, uh, Dizzy's ears picked up and really kind of was instrumental in, in spreading the word about this phenom in Wilmington. And that, that all happened at the Odd Fellows Temple, 10th and Orange. There is an Odd Fellows uh, building around 10th and Orange. I think it's on 10th. Oh, yes, I know. Because mm-hmm. yeah, on the facade, it has the OFFO. Or right, whatever. right. So it's it's uh, maybe that's a second building or something. Well, that it's was... On, it's mid-block. Yeah, that's, I guess, their kind of... Office. Or office whatever. or whatever. This was right. actually a performance hall. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, they would have dances there and everything. Oddly, uh, there are no pictures that I can find of it. Uh, there is one picture that I think is part of the insides of the building, but it's not precisely identified, but uh, with uh, descriptions from those who, who had been in there, you know, it's, it, I think it may be the, the same building, but be that as it may. So last big story um, that I enjoyed, and I, I, you, you, you must have told it, and I had never heard it before until I read it. Um, so the Thelonious Monk story. Uh, so, so th- this is another, uh, I mean, it's obviously one of the most famous jazz musicians of all time. Uh, and in the circumstances that he was in, uh, in here in Wilmington, Newcastle County, I think is, uh, is very funny. Uh, so can you, can you tell that story for everyone? Yeah. Well, Thelonious Monk, um, along with his, uh, saxophonist, uh, Charlie Rouse, uh, were traveling through, uh, Wilmington with, uh, the, uh, uh, Kathleen Koenigswater, who was a patron of uh, a lot of the jazz musicians. She was like a baroness. Baroness, yes. And um, she uh, lived in New York. As a matter of fact, it was in her apartment that Charlie Parker died. Uh, But she uh, took a lot of these musicians under her wing and really helped them out uh, because it wasn't easy being a jazz musician, even a famous one. Uh, And... uh, uh, so she was uh, driving her rolls <laughs> uh, through uh, w- uh, Delaware for a gig, I think, in Baltimore. And uh, Thelonious Monk was in the car, as well as Charlie Rouse. And uh, they were driving through uh, uh, Delaware. Uh, and in Minkwadale, they were uh, stopped. Uh, mainly because uh, Thelonious, you know, he wasn't feeling well and he wanted to get some uh, a water. And uh, when uh, someone, I guess, saw this white woman in a rolls with a couple of black men, I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, they were uh, stopped. And uh, Thelonious was roughed up because he wouldn't get out of the car. And they found a little bit of reefer uh, on uh, on his person and, and in some other locations. And uh, they were all arrested. Uh, when uh, the cop began to rough up uh, Thelonious Monk, uh, the, the Countess uh, Baroness uh, Koenigswater, uh, her, her nickname was Ponica, by the way, uh, says, you know, don't break his fingers. You know, he's a, he's a musician, you know. So uh, that was the first way that she kind of saved him. Uh, but uh, it led to uh, a real kerfuff, kerfluffle, right? <laughs> uh, and um, a delayed uh, court appearance. Uh, Thelonious had to come back uh, uh, at least once or twice um, to uh, face charges of police brutality, you know, uh, and uh, possession. I guess it wasn't a big deal back then. Uh, but uh, that all happened in uh, in Delaware, and it was 1948. And Thelonious uh, is a sense was a sensitive person, you know, and he, you know, and it really threw him. Uh, I think he, he needed some some therapy after that. Uh, he might have spent some time in the hospital because of the the incident. And it was uh, right before he was uh, to uh, record a soundtrack for a French movie called, uh, you have to help me with a French here, Le- Liaison Dangerous. Dangerous. Liaison, Liaison Dangerous. Right, it was a, a Roger Vadim, I got that one right there, a movie. Uh, and he was to do the soundtrack, and it, it, he almost didn't get to do it. Uh, 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 Art Blakey, you know, filled in uh, with some of the music. 
but uh, you know, and Thelonious was able to you know supply the the music for it, and it's wonderful. I mean, the the soundtrack or his part of the soundtrack has just been released, has been found and released over the past few years. But uh, that all happened in in 1958, and we think that during one of his uh, later court appearances uh, in Wilmington, he dropped in to the San Susi uh, because um, uh, there's a taped interview that was done with uh, Marion Allen um, where she happened to mention that, uh, yeah, Thelonious Monk was there, you know. It's, it's an incredible piece of history. Um, the book is Boise's Horn, The History of Jazz in Wilmington in the 20th Century, um, the author of this and many books uh, is Stephen Lynch. Uh, Leech. Uh, Leech. Excuse me. Just like the blood-sucking worm. <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know it's a little, little tricky getting everyone out, but um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. And uh, I hope everyone uh, is paying attention to uh, some of the other work that we'll, we're doing. Um, I mentioned uh, to, to Philip earlier, uh, we are sponsoring as a podcast something for Deshaun and Neil, uh, uh, and it's going to be co-sponsored by the Working Families Party. DSA is involved um, to get out uh, and canvas for Deshauna. That will happen. Uh, it actually just happened yesterday, but the reason I'm talking about it today uh, is because I think we're going to have some fun content for you, and we're going to have sort of an experimental Highlands Bunker podcast that won't even be a podcast. You'll actually see it with your eyes, which will be very, very fun. So once again, um, Stephen, Philip, thank you. And um, as always, left is best. <laughs> <laughs>